Thank you, Paul. Everything about that announcement makes me laugh. Um, I came to the dance, but I uh, really just want to play some board games. <laughs> sort of no. I, I'm, actually, I'm a little concerned about the church having a dance. That, and then I'm preaching on Jesus, turning the water into wine. This is the very definition of the slippery slope, people. <laughs> this is what they warned you about. What your parents warned you about is happening at Sanctuary right now. Slippery, slippery slope. Stand with me if you would. Um, we're reading from John's Gospel, the second chapter. Strange to think about, I've been preaching for 18 years and have managed to never preach from this text, which just seems odd because it's a wonderful text. John 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there was six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his sons in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the one who makes the real presence of the one who turned water into wine known to us in our midst right here, right now, and how we need that kind of transformation today, knowing that you are the one that always takes ordinary things and transforms them something into something extraordinary so that the songs that we sing somehow become more than music, so that somehow the words that we say today can become more than preaching, so that the elements that we'll partake of later will become more than bread and wine. We trust you, Spirit, in the same way that you brooded over the waters to brood over us now and to bring life and newness, to turn the water into wine, everything that's been mundane, everything that's shop-worn, everything, Lord, right now that for us has no taste. You're the one who brings the taste, the color, the life. We welcome you. And we say as your people, because we know that you always bring life when you come. Even so, come. Even so, come in our midst today, Lord Jesus. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grab a seat, if you would. This is a, this is a miracle story. I love miracle stories. I'm, of course, a product of that kind of church tradition where we like to talk about miracles. We get into miracles. All that's still in me. I believe in those things, even though my practice has changed a lot over the years. One thing that strikes me, though, especially reading this text, is that, and there are a lot of things about it, really, that are curious. I'll say more about it in a bit. I mean, everything from the fact that it's just a fascinating way for Jesus to start his ministry. I mean, John's gospel, this is the first miracle, and it's not healing lepers. It's not raising up some dead child, these other amazing things we see Jesus does. All that happens is that Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. The host runs out of wine, 
in a culture that's really established on honor and shame. To run out of wine would bring a lot of shame. And Jesus, pestered by his mother, turns the water into wine. So the ordinary wedding all of a sudden turns into, oh, 180 gallons of choice wine, which is worth about $130,000 in our equivalent. I mean, it's just... Nuts. And the coolest way to launch a ministry, and strangest, all the more because it, it feels like kind of a minor chord as far as miracles are concerned. It, even the, the details of it, right? Like the guests don't know what's happened. They just know they're drinking choice wine, but only the servants actually know what's going on. So in that way, it's not super conspicuous, which brings me full circle because in my tradition, you know, we like conspicuous miracles. We want like, you know, you don't just kind of uh, sneak back and turn the water into wine. You know, come on, Jesus, wave your magic wand. Say abracadabra. Make it cool. Bring a bunny out of a hat. Like, dazzle the crowds. It's just not what Jesus does. You know, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is always healing people and then telling them not to tell any, anybody. We see these things over and over. This all kind of just had me in mind this week, and I, I think I've probably been looking for an excuse to tell this story because it's literally one of my favorite stories. I love miracle stories gone wrong, personally, like when people try to do something like really demonstrative and it doesn't, it's not, I'm, I'm sure that's not spiritual. For those of you who watched The Office when it was on, you know, like that, that kind of like awkward humor is just where it's at for me. So in the spirit of that, one of these, this is a friend of a friend story, but it is told to me as a true story. Um, pastor in a charismatic church in the southeast. Everybody in the church wanted revival to break out. They wanted signs and wonders and miracles. He didn't feel like he knew how to deliver that. You know, he's not, you know, was it somebody to lay hands on people and folks get healed or give prophetic words or whatever. So he brought an evangelist who was known to do those things to kind of do the job. So the evangelist comes in. Revival's been going on for a couple nights. A friend of my friend is playing music and uh, during the altar service, right? So it's in, towards the end of the sermon. And the preacher starts doing his thing of calling people out, like you call people out of the crowd, giving prophetic words, that kind of thing. And there's a lady holding a baby, he calls her up to the stage, he starts prophesying over her, starts prophesying over the baby. And the prophecy is basically like that God has raised up this, going to raise up this baby to become a prophet to the nations and how it was going to be like the next Billy Graham and he was going to change the world and be this great preacher and teacher and travel the world. And it was this glorious, glorious prophet, you know, prophecy, right? So uh, the guy who's playing music for the Walter service winds down. He goes back to the pastor's study. The evangelist comes back and joins him in the pastor's study. And they keep waiting for the pastor to come back, and he doesn't. So it's like 20 or 30 minutes goes by. Finally, when he does come in, he's like enraged. He slams the door, starts cussing out the evangelist, like cussing a blue streak. Like, how dare you? I can't believe you've done this in my church. They're going to run me out of town. I'm not going to be able to come back here. Like, my ministry here is finished. Like, so upset. And the evangelist, like, you know, just doesn't understand. Like, what's wrong? He says, that baby you prayed for was a cabbage patch doll. <laughs> and the backstory apparently, the backstory apparently is that this sweet girl who had some, some kind of mental challenges. Everyone in the church knows her, loves her, very sweet, always carries around her Cabbage Patch doll. The evangelist prophesied over a Cabbage Patch doll. Now tell me, is that not the most delicious thing you've ever heard? If you're not laughing, I don't even understand you. Like, I, that, is, that is the funniest thing I've ever heard. You prophesied over a Cabbage Patch doll. I wish I was in that service. We like it conspicuous, but this is not often how Jesus does things. There is something kind of understated. He, he comes in 
quietly. He comes as just one of the guests. That never dawned on me before this morning, actually, that Jesus didn't even officiate the wedding, which, by the way, if that's your wedding, I call that a missed opportunity, right? <laughs> like, can you imagine looking back at the wedding pictures later? But my Pastor Brent did a good job, but sure wish we'd have used Jesus. <laughs> He'd have been great. Like, you know, I bet he'd done a really nice job. Jesus <laughs> attended the wedding. So he's coming, he's coming as a guest. I, I do think, and there are a few things I want to say about this, really. One of the things I love most about it is that in John's gospel, and there's no equivalent story to this in the other three, is that this is sort of the inaugural uh, work, the inaugural miracle in Jesus' earthly ministry. There's something to me that's so wonderful that he chooses to do that at a wedding party. It's just not what you'd expect. I find it fascinating, and we know that people will slander Jesus. They will libel Jesus. So what they're saying is not true, but they, you know, he's constantly being accused of being a drunkard, a wine-bibber in King James language. People will call him demon-possessed. They call him all sorts of things. No one ever accuses Jesus of being stuck in the mud. No one ever accuses Jesus of being a do-gooder who doesn't know how to have a good time, right? Like, no, that doesn't happen. So if like, again, we know Jesus is a very disciplined person. He's not a drunkard. But if there's some kernel of truth to that, I, I'm, I'm just saying this, y'all. Like on the continuum, where do you, would you find that most Christians like in our context would land? Are they more likely to be labeled drunkard? They like to party too much. They're too into having a good time. Or stuck in the mud, do-gooder, doesn't like to have any fun. I'm just saying um, this is the, the, the ministry of the fact that Jesus starts with this, right? The, the Messiah who turns out to be the guy, the kind of barman who does get concerned when people run out of wine because he doesn't want the party to be over. Like this is how the ministry of Jesus is introduced in John's gospel. I think there, I'm from the church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. I think there are church of God and Southern Baptist folks who actually take this text out. You know, we just omit it altogether. That's not really true. I'm just having fun. You can make fun of your own people, right? It's like, a footnote here, by the way, for people who want to say like, because occasionally when I was growing up, I heard all these people saying, well, back in the Bible days, they didn't use real wine, which makes great sense later on in, the, in that uh, story, right? When the, guy, when the steward says, you know, most people serve the cheap wine, uh, they serve the good wine first, so that after everybody gets toasted, they don't know the difference and you can bring out the, you can bring out the cheap wine, but you save the best for last. So clearly this is actual alcohol, I'm just saying. Grace and peace, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Grace and peace, Bible Belt. But the thing, the thing I really love here uh, is the exchange between Jesus and his mother. There's something that, of course, Jesus is always divine, but that's wonderfully human about this exchange. Can we put that back on the screen, verse 3? And this is just fascinating. So when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And my, my image of this is these are family friends. Mary's kind of freaking out because she knows it would bring great dishonor to these people that she loves if, you know, everybody's out of wine. So however she knows, maybe because of the miraculous nature of the birth of Jesus. I mean, you know, we haven't seen him do any miracles yet in the Gospels. She knows that Jesus is special. So she comes to him like, um, Jesus, need you to use your magic Jesus powers to do something about this. <laughs> And Jesus says to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Important to clarify, the word that he uses for woman here is not exactly a disrespectful word. 
like on its own merit, it's fine. Um, it could even be considered a dignifying word. Still, in antiquity and certainly not in Jesus' culture, no one says this to their mother. You still don't, you don't call your mom woman. So even if it's not intended as a sign of disrespect, which I don't think it is, at the very least, there's a kind of differentiation going here, right? Like there's, there's a way of Jesus kind of saying, okay, you're used to relating to me as your son, but you do know I have other things to do here, right? Though there's some kind of distance that seems to be created. Uh, Mary, at this point, in a real sense, is a disciple of Jesus, too, like anybody else. So it's an interesting phrase. You know, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? My time has not come. I mean, the only way, I think, to read this at face value, like the superficial reading kind of has to be, buzz off, mom. Like, I'm just here to enjoy the wedding. I mean, there is no way that this doesn't seem dismissive. And yet Mary's response to me here is just so gorgeous. Can we put that up as well? So after Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? My time has not yet come. His mother immediately turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. (laughs) Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Which is fascinating. Because the words on the surface seem like, buzz off, get lost, leave me alone. But Mary, who knows Jesus and knows the heart of Jesus, discerns something deeper than what's happening on the surface of the words. My friend Chris Green says that this is a, it really is a way to think about how we read scripture. That oftentimes what we read at the face value, if an entirely superficial reading of certain kinds of texts, will feel to us like buzz off. They just stand off us. We don't know what to do with them. Uh, can, can confuse us about what God's up to, which is why it requires the illumination of the Holy Spirit to sync us up with the heart of God so that we can see the will of God that runs deeper than the words. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? The will of God beneath the words. So it's not just a matter of having this reaction to what you read on the page. There has to be an enlightenment. There has to be an awakening. There has to be a way that the Holy Spirit allows us to discern the heart of God and the will of God that runs beneath the text. I love that in terms of a way of thinking about how we read Scripture. But again, the other thing about this text that just always lands in an interesting place for me is, is, is just the fact that it's all so hidden. Jesus tells them to fill the jugs, right? So there, and there's six of those. Um, these are the jugs that would be used Um, very much for ritual cleansing. So washing of the hands. Uh, Judaism is very much a law of of, of, of a religion of purity, right? So the purity codes are extremely important. So this is the water that you use to wash your hands with. Jesus says, fill them to the brim. And then he simply tells tells them to, to draw out the water. I love the obedience of the servants there, that by the time the chief steward is partaking, they haven't seen the water turned to wine. There's no evidence that it changed colors, any of that. They just do what Jesus said, which seems to make no sense. That's important. They draw out the water anyway, and he tasted, and my goodness, this is the best wine. You saved the best for last. I, I really feel a Vanessa Williams anointing in this service. Wasn't that her name? Only eight people got that joke in the last service, too. Do y'all remember that song about saving the best for last? Okay. 1991 was a good year, whenever that was. Um, but there's something about it. And yet the thing that's so, that's so beautiful about this is that in this sort of hidden act, the end of the text says that this reveals the glory of Jesus. This is how the glory of Jesus is revealed. The disciples believe because of this, even though they didn't watch the water transform into wine, but they did receive the benefits of it. They were able to receive the gift 
what, what, just to me, so much in this about how God works. But to bring this around a little bit to some application, I know, and, and, and thank you for indulging me. I want to just, I want to preach the text. We'll land in some particular places. But, you know, early on in, in church history, I'm fascinated that the, this, the consensus among the fathers is that when they would preach about this text, when they would preach about Jesus turning the water into wine, they would always talk about this in terms of how we read Scripture, uh, more broadly, how we read Scripture. So, for example, Origen said, and I love this so much, Origen said, for truly before Jesus, the Scripture was water, but after Jesus, it, beca- it has become wine for us. Isn't that lovely? Before Jesus, the Scripture was water, but after Jesus, it has become wine for us. What came before wasn't bad. You have to have the water to make the wine. The water's in the wine, right? So it's not that Jesus abolishes the law, as he'll say later, he fulfills it, but yet it's, there still was this way that the, that the law was not enough. Torah was not enough. It was good on its own terms. The Psalms celebrate this all the time, how much I love the law, how much I delight in your law. Torah was good on its own terms, but only with, within parameters, right? Um, it was refreshing for a season. It was water that God's people needed for a time, but it wasn't wine yet, It wasn't for feasting yet. It wasn't full of flavor yet. I wish I could remember who said this. Somebody wrote that what Jesus does in this miracle is takes 180 gallons of guilt and turns it into 180 gallons of grace. How fantastic is that? 180 gallons of guilt into 180 gallons of grace. So that now... What was water, what was good for you, but maybe a little mundane, a little bit tasteless, now is is, is full of all this life and color and vitality. Augustine had a lovely way of speaking of this too. Augustine said, what previously had no taste began to have a taste. What before did not intoxicate became intoxicating. That's fabulous in thinking about scripture, that now it's intoxicating. That's my sense whenever I read how Paul and the other writers of the early epistles write about the Old Testament. That's my sense, is that they are punch drunk on Jesus. They are so intoxicated with Jesus, they are seeing Jesus everywhere. Not just in those sort of messianic prophecies that would seem to be explicitly about Jesus. They violate the rules of kind of 20th century fundamentalist context over and over again. Because for them, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. Didn't have to be a messianic prophecy. Oh, Genesis is about Jesus. Exodus is about Jesus. The law is about Jesus. Song of Songs, that's actually about Jesus. The prophets, really always about Jesus. They're seeing Jesus everywhere. They go outside in the nature, the sun, moon, and stars. Like everything's about Jesus for them. Same thing that happens when you fall in love, right? That all of a sudden, like everything becomes about that one person. <laughs> like they, hung, I mean, they're just intoxicated with Jesus. I love that whole image that what God does in the New Testament is take the water of the Old Testament, broods over it, and transforms it into wine now. Not doing away with what's old, but changing it into something really, really new. Changing it for us to be able now to feast, to be intoxicated. That's so beautiful to me. Augustine, though, since I brought him up, celebrated this on an even more broad level. So beyond the way that you know, that, that God kind of changes scripture from water into wine and the movement from Old to New Testament. He has this other uh, section that I think is so, so beautiful. Augustine writes, For even as that which the servants put into the water pots was turned into wine by the doing of the Lord, 
so in like manner also is what the clouds pour forth changed into wine by the doing of the same Lord. But we do not wonder at the latter because it happens every year. It has lost its marvelousness by its constant recurrence. Do you hear what Augustine is saying? Augustine is saying, all the wine comes from God. Here, God transforms it in a moment. And we don't appreciate the fact that really he does this year after year. That The only reason we have wine at all is because God waters the vineyard. God is responsible. This is happening all the... Bernie, this is good news. Every glass of wine is a miracle. That's my tweetable line of the day. Doesn't that sound like a country song? It's a country song or a southern gospel song. Maybe that's more country. Every glass of wine is a miracle. I mean, slippery slope, people. It's like this... This, and I do think there's something so lovely about that that like, I'm not a wine connoisseur, so I'm not gonna embarrass myself here. But that, when, that it, it, when you shake it, that's not the right word. When you do this, don't correct me now though. When you do the stuff that you do and then you smell it just right and all those things, it's like all the aromas, all the different flavors and somebody who's really a connoisseur, oh, I detect a little vanilla. Here's a hint of oak and uh, oh my goodness, that's the, a little, uh, some rhinoceros. No, that's, I don't think that's actually on the list. Like whatever like your sensitive palate is able to pick up on. But there's just no, wine can have so many flavors. It's so full-bodied. I just love that notion, you know, that, like, that, that every glass of wine in of itself is a miracle. It speaks of the goodness of God. A God who, for whom it's not enough to just give you water. A God for whom it's not enough to give you just enough sustenance so you can make it. But a God of abundance. So not only does he not content to just give you water, he wants to give you wine. And he wants to give you a lot of wine. How about 180 gallons, people? How about $130,000 worth of wine for one rural wedding, right? That's excessive. That's extreme. So much of what happens in John's gospel to follow from this really is bound up in the story. This is just what Jesus does wherever he goes. Is he brings life. He brings abundant life. It's always more than you ask for, but it always happens in an unexpected, surprising way often just a little bit beneath the radar. You know, um, I don't say this all the time. Um, I don't want this to be shopworn, but you know, I do have this thing sometimes where certain messages just work on me, and this has been one of those. Um, I almost preached a different lectionary text, actually, but felt like I couldn't get away from this one. I just had to sit with it for a long time, and there's this weird thing that happens. All the messages that come out for me clear mean that there are days of confusion and like stewing and brute. Like I, the more I hate my life on Friday and Saturday, the better the message is going to be. Whereas if I'm fine, then inevitably it's going to train wreck. I hate how that works because it was one of, those, one of those weekends, like everything was just churning. And I felt like I was seeing all these things that seemed important, that seemed good, but I don't know, it didn't quite feel like to me, okay, this is just what God really wants to say in a revelatory way to his people. And the thing I just, that just landed heavy on me yesterday, um, kind of out of nowhere, was just this sense, just this sort of urgency for people who really are at a place in their lives where there really is this sense for you that you feel like you're out of wine, that, you, that, you, that are in this place where everything right now seems dull, colorless, lifeless, routine, uh, that you come, to, you come to the well to draw water over and over again and it always tastes the same, feels like nothing's going to change. So discouraging, especially when you've been doing that for a long time, when you try to be faithful for a long time. And there's this sense that maybe, like, like, almost like you're under God's radar, like he's not paying attention, that maybe your problem is too small, or maybe that your life, as I think of it sometimes, that my life is too small. See, I tend to think, especially with all the things happening in the world, I mean, still now, I'll think, 
God, you have better things to do. You know, like God, there's plenty of work to be done at cancer wards and in war zones. How can God possibly be concerned with where I am right now? And that's, to me, what's so beautiful about this story is the attention to detail, just how concerned God is about anything that concerns you. I mean, running out of wine at a wedding is hardly a national disaster. This is not some world-class emergency. But Jesus cares about this. He cares enough about it to do something. He cares enough about it to make a change. And I just really felt that press specifically for people who just are at a place where you just feel like you're doing the same thing over and over again. There's no color, there's no life, no flavor. That place in your life where you really wonder, is this all? Is this all there is? Is that, is that it? And, and, and if I could just somehow encourage you that the God who's revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, it is his way to work behind the scenes that God is at work doing something in the kitchen that maybe nobody else can see. Another sermon for another time I love here where it says that, you know, the guests don't know where it comes from, but the servants know. <laughs> That's a sermon of itself, I think. The people who are in the kitchen actually are the ones who discern this. But, but God's behind the scenes. God's in the kitchen where nobody else is looking. He's not doing something spectacular, but he is moving things. He is shifting things. He is at work somehow here. It's just not, it's just not conspicuous. It's just not obvious. I, I had felt led to pray for people in our church, in our context, who are a little bit older, who've been doing this for a long time and really have this sense that your best years are behind you, that all the great discoveries that you've had about God in life, that somehow that feels like it's in the past. I just want to remind you this morning of the character of God, that he is always the one who saves the best for last he is always the one who makes the latter days better than the former. And the very moment when it seems like grace is running out, the very moment when you feel like you don't have energy, you don't have juice, you feel like there's just, when you feel like you're lack, what this really is, is an opportunity for God to show up in an extraordinary way. The, the ver, that very lack, that very need, those places in your life where you're dry, where there's this shame, and there's, there's something wrong with you. Or how about this? You know, they just run out of wine here. How about people who, like the prodigal son, spend through all their money? He, he drunk all the wine, too, because he stole his father's inheritance. And so then you think when you come back home that somehow God doesn't have more for you? Be reminded of the very character of God. This is what God always does. It has nothing to do with your faithfulness. All he asks of you, and I really think that's so much, I don't wanna, because I don't want to make this about your work here, but there is a role that we have. What he asks of you is to show up. Keep drawing the water. Keep showing up at the same time, at the same place, to do the same things when it feels like it doesn't make a difference. So you pray anyway, even though you don't feel like anything's changing. We return to the scripture anyway, even though it feels like it's falling deaf on us. We keep showing back up to worship, even though you might be in a season right now where you don't feel anything while you sing. We just keep showing up. And the thing that's so delightful about God, because he works behind the scenes, because he's in the kitchen, because he's conspiring to do things in you that right now you cannot see, is that one day you draw the water again and, wow, what's happened? Something just tastes different. I love that specifically, you know, the chief steward said, he didn't, he specifically says, he didn't know where it came from. There really is a sense of, I, I don't even know how this happened. Things have changed, and I'm not even exactly sure what changed. I don't know exactly where this, came, where this comes from. Things, I don't know exactly how to explain this, but things that you can't see, but you can taste. 
That's what I'm talking about. People didn't see the miracle happen, but they could taste the results of it. They could taste the fruit of it. They were able to taste the gift that spoke of God, which is how in this the glory of Jesus is revealed. And remarkably, disciples believe more deeply in Jesus because of this miracle. I'm just really convinced that if you'll keep showing up, even though right now it feels like nothing's happening, that the moment is going to come. Even though you've drawn the same water from the same well over and over, even though you've looked into the same empty tomb about a thousand times and seen the same dead body until one day you show up and the tomb's empty. And it, where did this come from? Why now? And that's a great question, right? I have no idea. I, have, I, can, I, I do not understand the timing of God in these things. I just know that in the moment when you're out, I know in the moment when, the, when you're out of wine, when there seems to be no more grace, when the, everything in you seems to be dead and dried up, these are the moments where Jesus does his most beautiful work. So for whatever it's worth, Please, 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 for the love of God, literally, hang in there. Please keep coming back. Please keep showing up. Don't step back. Don't step away from the Lord right in the moment when he's about to demonstrate his faithfulness to you. Just because you can't see what God's doing behind the scenes doesn't mean nothing's happening. That's why we have to be people who trust, our, who trust God, who have faith, oversight. Because things are happening. God is conspiring for you in ways that you cannot see, that you cannot discern. Honestly, I'm convinced it's good most of the time that we can't see what's happening back there because we wouldn't know what to do with the information. It would just freak us out. But he's up to things right now that you can't see. All you can do is just be faithful in the small things. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, which is a revolving door, by the way. Does it work to kind of camp out on something you feel like God gave you 25 years ago? Because the relationship with Jesus is a living, dynamic, active thing. And what God says and does in one season of your life might be very different in the next season of your life, which is why over and over is why we have to stay attentive, why we have to be checked in, why we have to listen, because God's on the move. We have to be on the move too. So I'm putting the emphasis down on the whatever. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And God will prove himself to be faithful. Stand with me, if you would. Today's that day where I want to find this T.D. Jakes gear in me, because it's in me. It's in me. I don't know how to get it out. I feel this so, so deeply. We're going to come to the table in just a moment. Before we do that, I, I do just feel real weight on the prayer time today, because I just, I just believe the Holy Spirit wants to make this so particular for some of you right now. So would you just... How, whatever posture of prayer is most comfortable for you is all right to lift your hands, to close your eyes, to not. I don't care. I just would ask you to be especially open right now. Just be especially open to the, to the Spirit of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we, we admit, God, that we, like the Israelites in the Old Testament who complained about the manna they had to eat every day. Um, some of us who've been drinking the same water for a long time and nothing seems to change. Lord, we, we get so discouraged. And I've just felt the weight of uh, heartbreak. I've felt the weight of discouragement for sons and daughters of yours here, sons and daughters who are listening right now, who just 
really feel like they're at the end of their robe, the end of the tether. They've just tried everything they've known how to try, and they right now feel invisible to you, have wondered whether or not you're really there, have wondered whether or not you've forgotten about them, have wondered if somehow maybe what's happening in, in them somehow escapes your attention. God, I just pray in your goodness right now that you would gently, by your Holy Spirit, remind your sons and daughters that you are here, that you are faithful, that no one is too small, nothing is too small, there's nothing that concerns them, there's nothing that presses on them that's not heavy on your own heart, that you're a good, good father as we sing, and you know how to give good gifts to your children. You don't want them just to get by. You want to bless. You want to bring them into a, to an abundant life, Lord. I don't know what that's going to look like, but Lord, we trust you now to turn the water into wine. We trust you now, Lord. We trust, God, in the very areas where we have thought that you have forgotten and the very things that have become so routine and mundane and where we just don't feel like we have the energy anymore. God, we just trust you to be at work in those things. Thank you that even now you're conspiring in ways that we cannot see. Thank you that even now your spirit broods over the water as it did in Genesis. You brood over the water, turning it into wine. Thank you, Jesus. That when that this is not about us, it's not about our faithfulness or about our goodness. We just keep showing up with open hands and open hearts, doing the best we can to say yes to you, doing the best we can to do what you've told us to do. And God, over and over again, you show us your goodness and your glory. I just pray even now that some water would start to turn into wine. I pray that even now, God, just for the confirmation, the trust, just the confidence to build up in us. Lord, that you will be faithful to your word. You'll be faithful to your people. God, that you still have such good things in store for your sons and daughters, that you always, always, always save the best for last. Make this known in the depth of our souls now, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ask our servers. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.